Underwriting for AutoLine this week is provided by... Did you know advanced high-strength steels are the leading material used by automakers to achieve the new fuel economy standards? Advanced high-strength steels are lighter in weight and reduce greenhouse gas emissions without compromising safety, performance, or affordability. Steel, a sound, sustainable investment. Today, tomorrow, and beyond. For more information, visit autosteel.org. You know why I pulled you over, ma'am? I need you to recalibrate the Doppler shift on the return signal. Radar's on the frisk. Do Sonata drivers know something you don't? The Sonata from Hyundai. And now, here is your host, John McElroy. Thanks for joining us on AutoLine this week. We're going to be talking about all kinds of product development and new products from General Motors. That's because my special guest today is Mary Barra, the Senior Vice President of Global Product Development for the Corporation. Welcome to AutoLine this week, Mary. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Good. And also joining us is Michelle Krebs from Edmunds.com and Jeff Bennett from the Wall Street Journal. Great having the both of you here, too. Mary, uh, in the 2009 bankruptcy, and I think even leading up to that, GM really started to slow down and cut back on programs. Now things are racing forward. Where does the company stand right now? Are you caught up or how much do you have to go to catch up? Well, I think, you know, we've had a lot of great products that have come out in the last two years, and now the pipeline is just full of products coming out this fall and all next year. So, you know, I would say in the in the United States alone, over the 2013-20 or 2012-2013 timeframe, we'll turn over 70% of the portfolio. So, again, we've had some strong products coming in the last couple years, but um, from now till about the end of next year, it's just going to be continuous new products from General Motors. How long does, what is your vehicle development time now? Well, a lot of it, it depends on where you snap the chalk line, and it also depends, are you starting with an all-new vehicle from ground up like the ATS, or are you taking a variant off of an architecture like we've done with some of the different models? Uh, so it really depends, but you know, it can cheat. Uh, well, clean sheet, again, it, it still depends when you start, but I would say, you know, it's in the, you know, high 30 months to low 40s, again, depending on the specific, specifics of the vehicle and the technology. So that's kind of the window we're in for all new, and then it's shorter, and we're constantly looking at opportunities, both, um, you know, I'll say discipline in our vehicle development process, as well as using um, tools. Uh, there's a lot of tools that we can use, uh, you know, from a simulation perspective, CAD, CAE, ex- or CAE examples uh, that allow us to take time out of the vehicle development process. Mm-hmm. So. Is there a goal that you are continuing to drive at to, to get that time down? I know it continues to fall, the amount of time spent, but is there a new goal perhaps the industry is really trying to reach for now? You know, I think with um, it, it's got to be with quality. And so what gates uh, my decisions of making sure we're doing all the right validation, especially for new technology, and that's why it varies a little bit depending on how much new is actually on the vehicle. Uh, so quality's got to gate it. I mean, I think obviously we'd all want it as quick as possible because, I mean, anytime you get to see a new vehicle, you're like, well, how quickly can I get it on the road? Uh, so we want it as short as possible. But for me, qu- I haven't set a, a, a time frame because it's executing with discipline and making sure we're hitting the quality mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we've done a lot of work to improve our quality over the years. I still think there's more work that we can continue to do, so that's my focus. General Motors has more product development centers, I think, than any other car company in the world. I think you got six of them. The United States, Brazil, Germany, Australia, South Korea, China. It just sounds like you have too many of them. How do you manage the complexity of having so many programs 
being developed simultaneously in so many parts of the world. Well, I think there was a point in time where maybe we had sliced and diced within a program. I think, you know, one of the benefits of having that kind of footprint is you have engineers in many markets that really have deep understanding of the customer. Because, you know, what's important to a customer in India or Korea or, or North America can be very different. So that's the benefit. But one of the things we've worked on over the last couple of years is not trying to have, you know, this part of the vehicle done here, this part of the vehicle done there, because you create a lot of interfaces and it, it makes it a little more difficult, I think, to execute the vehicle well and in a timely fashion. So what we've focused on is we've assigned programs over the last couple years is pretty much if we're going to do it, you know, we're going to do the bulk of, of the vehicle in one engineering center. We may leverage specific resources, but that's really allowed us to, uh, I think, to, to have the consistency that we needed and not try to execute something that's too hard from a uh, engineering difficulty perspective. But do you need so many of them? As I said, I don't think any other company has as many PD centers. Well, you know, to your point, one of the other things is we're looking at what do those engineering centers do. And we set up architectures now all in one location. It happens to be the, uh, our U.S., our Warren uh, site, because you need to have not only driving the commonality within an architecture, but between architectures. And if they're doing those differently, to your point, you're not going to have that. So I think we're all, that's what I also look at the work that we're doing. But Every one as we set up a new vehicle is going to come through uh, the group that does that in Warren to make sure that it's uh, it's driving all the consistencies and taking advantage of what General Motors one of our big strengths is is our scale. So um, you know that's the way we tackle it, and then we're getting the best of both worlds because we still have those engineers on the ground that understand the customer, but we're making sure we set it up before we uh, you know ask an, uh, a regional engineering center to execute. One of the big product launches you have next year, maybe one of the biggest in any time recently, are the, the new full-size pickup trucks and the new full-size SUVs. Mm -hmm. We don't know much about that. Can you tell us anything about those yet? Well, I can't tell you a lot about them because um, uh, we just we haven't uh, made a lot of formal announcements, but I have had the opportunity to drive many of them, and I think it's going to be something that uh, the, uh, the market is going to be very excited. I think it, it truly d delivers on one of General Motors' key strengths is our full-size trucks and, and utilities. So um, other than saying I'm really excited. I can't say much more. What can you say if they're clean sheet or they're more derivative or how have you gone about developing them? Again, these are all new trucks. Uh, you know, we're always looking for where are the opportunities to uh, to leverage and build on technologies, but I would say clearly these are these trucks are are all new. Was there a uh, a push this time around to really take some more weight out. I know that there continues to be that focus, especially on the trucks, but you don't want to give up the functionality of them. I mean, is that was that kind of uh, a bigger consideration this go around since you are refreshing and getting rid of get getting rid of, ready for these you know fuel requirements that get, that keep coming towards you. Well, you know, unlike some of the cars where I think we've struggled with, uh, you know, making sure they're as mass efficient as possible, we made some trade-offs where we didn't have quite the focus on mass. The ATS being one that, you know, really is the first out that has that, you know, that, I'll say, fun, just maniacal focus on mass. We actually uh, were in the lead from a mass efficiency in, in trucks uh, in the past. We've carried that forward. And I think we had that same focus on trucks to make sure, because, you know, as you look at the size of the full-size truck market, a lot of it's going to depend on how fuel efficient can we make those large vehicles. So we've looked at every element, not just mass, but everything we can do to make sure the trucks are as efficient as possible to get the right fuel economy, which we think is very important because then it enables customers to buy the vehicles they really want to buy. And not so. just make them as efficient as possible, but affordable. And, you know, there's a very interesting study that just came out from a group called Scenaria that says that it looks like the fuel efficiency improvements we're going to get is going to drive up the average cost of a vehicle by $5,000, not the 
the sixteen to eighteen hundred dollars that the EPA has been saying. Where does GM see it going? How do you think this is going to affect car prices? Well, you know, there's, you know, when you look at the the scale that we have of going forward and meeting uh, fuel efficiency requirements, you know, out through the next decade, uh, you get to a point where, depending on how you approach it and what size vehicles you want to put into the marketplace, they're going to take more technology. But some of those are a way out. I think, uh, you know, we continue to look at how do we make the core, you know, mass efficient, uh, uh, you know, from without adding, you know, I'll say more exotic materials. How do we make sure our powertrain is efficient as possible? And how do we focus on integrating the whole vehicle? Uh, not just, you know, because you can get into kind of silos of this is most efficient, this is most efficient, but you got to put it together and how, how does the vehicle integrate? So that's been our focus. So I'd say it starts with a fundamental, that fundamental foundation. Then you start to have a menu of what you can add. But I think between now and then there's going to continue to be breakthroughs. I mean, I think if we look at the technologies available today, and I have the scenario, I haven't uh, gone through the whole thing, but, you know, as we look at the different technologies, some are, are more uh, costly than others. Some of them, uh, the cost is largely related to scale. And as we get scale and, and have more cycles of learning, I think they'll come down. So I, I'm not signing up for a specific number, but I do think it's, it starts with the fundamentals and then it looks at the various technologies you can use to drive fuel efficiency, which differs depending on the segment. And, and then you've got to make your decisions. And I think um, it's going to distinguish companies as we get into those timeframes. Speaking of technology, are, are you having any reservations about where you're going in terms of electric battery vehicles like the Chevy Bolt? None at all. I mean, I think uh, the E-Rev is such an important technology and the Chevrolet Volt. I mean, for people who drive the, the vehicle, our customers are the most satisfied customers, I think, that they have ever been uh, surveyed externally. I think it was like a 92 percent uh, uh, satisfaction with the vehicle. So I think we still struggle with the, you know, extended range electric vehicle of people really understanding what that technology provides for them. I mean, we have people who get mad, you know, if you run on electric fuel for a long enough period of time, the vehicle forces you to use the gas in the engine so it doesn't get old and, and, and affect the vehicle. People get mad about that because they are so used to the efficiency of the vehicle. So I think there's still a very important market. I think, uh, again, committing to the technology and continued development and battery cycles of learning. We've already, um, with the, the uh, Volt that we have on the road today, already has a approved battery um, mileage. You know, I think it's uh, around the 37 uh, miles per charge that you can get. So we're continuing to squeeze out, um, you know, more efficiency and take costs out. So very committed. But it's not a issue about cost. Yeah, it, yeah. It's not a technical issue, though, right? It's a, it's really a sales issue. Of electrics are not selling anywhere near what the industry or others thought that they would. Well, I think the customer is very rational. So I think the customer does their own equation for their own use and says, okay, is this going to be a vehicle that's going to give me, um, you know, value for my money? That's why I think there's, there is a, a education piece on the Volt, because I think a lot of folks don't understand exactly what the value proposition is. But then, you know, when you go through and as more, uh, you know, uh, standard technology vehicles are getting more and more fuel efficient, they have, they have choices to make. But I still think uh, electrification is going to be one of the key strategies going forward, and we're committed to it and committed to continue the cycles of learning to get the cost out. But do you still think that it's the barrier of cost that it's the hardest to get over, or is it more still you don't just cannot get consumers connected with it beyond the first adopters? I mean, we, we've seen that, and you would think that the next phase would kick in, but we just really have not seen that second wave come along saying, all right, uh, I'm comparing cars, and this is the one I want to buy because it's electric, and making that decision. 
Uh, I, I think we, again, I think it's a combination of the two. I think there's a little uh, bit of education, but then I think there is, um, you know, opportunity to continue to drive down the cost of the electrification and the batteries. I think that will further expand into the marketplace. So I think it, it's both coming together, and I, I think you have to have both. I don't think it's just education. I think um, we still need to, to work on getting the scale as well to get the cost down. It seems that uh, shale oil and shale gas could be a game changer. That's how I see it, at least. We've seen the price of natural gas literally drop in half in this country. I was recently through Williston, North Dakota, where the Bakken oil field uh, activity is going on. It is Boomtown, USA. Mm -hmm. And as you probably know, North Dakota surpassed Alaska last year to become the second largest oil producing state in the country. What happens in the future if gas prices don't go up with all these fuel economy standards and all these t uh, this technology that's got to come in? Especially when we look at some of the things that you guys are doing right now, where you can get cars with 40 miles per gallon, and they're not even hybrids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, again, I, that's why I think we have to continue to add value, you know, for the customer. And, and the way I look at it, a lot of the vehicles that have that type of fuel economy are smaller. We still have a lot of people who like driving their full-size utilities. And so we've got to look for a range of solutions and continue to eke out as much as we can from all the different technologies. You know, I'll, I'll say our, our traditional internal combustion engine, just designing the vehicle more efficiently so it, it takes less mass. We've got to work on all of those things and then let the customer decide. But I, I still believe they'll be room for electrification. Four to five years ago, everybody was talking about peak oil. I believed it because all the experts were saying we're running out of oil. Mm -hmm. Has this, this shale oil and gas changed any of your thinking as you plan deeper into the decade product-wise? Well, I, I, you know, I think if anyone could predict exactly where we're going to be in five to ten years, uh, they'd be yeah, very, very popular, <laughs> to say, to, at a minimum. Um, and, and that's why we've got to be prepared. I mean, and that's why for, for many years now, General Motors uh, has had an energy diversity where, you know, we have work going on with CNG vehicles. We have, you know, continued work with fuel cell vehicles, with batteries, with improving the internal combustion engine hybrids, et cetera. I, I really believe it's going to be, uh, you know, it's not going to be one silver bullet, but it's going to be many things, again, depending on the availability of, of the resource and depending on what the customer wants. Do you often get out to the track to drive your vehicles and competitor vehicles? I, you know, I get out to the Milford Proving Grounds um, quite a bit. Is not as much as I'd love to, but um, I, you know, at least a couple times a month. Uh, I was just out there. It was a week ago last Friday, and I was working on my speed certification because uh, it's uh, it's they're fun to drive. And so, and I, when I go out, a lot of times I drive not only our vehicles but our competitor vehicles. You know, lining them up segment to segment, uh, and then just enjoy driving. What uh, were you driving well. last week? Can you tell us? Uh, well, I was actually driving a Corvette. Okay. Oh, so. nice. <laughs> <laughs> Among others, but that was uh, the vehicle that I was working on, uh, or work, you know, going through some of the different training classes in. In terms of your competitors, anybody in particular you're concerned about, interested in? What, what have you driven from a competitor that was interesting to you? Oh, I've, I've probably driven at every major OEM in the last few months uh, a different, you know, vehicle. Because, again, there's the the other OEMs are very, um, very capable. I mean, I don't think there's any OEM that you can say, oh, I don't have to worry about those. I mean, uh, they all are, are working on the same, you know, fuel efficiency uh, and uh, uh, light weighting uh, and also, you know, driving what the customer cares about in the vehicle. So I don't dismiss uh, any of the major OEMs because I, I think they are very competent. You know, earlier this summer when you, when you uh, took over, you, one of the things you did were to remove some executive positions mm -hmm. to kind of speed things up. I'm wondering, do you think you went far enough or do you think there's still some more 
cutting that needs to be done. And then with that, how are you kind of speeding up that culture with NGM? We know that there's a lot of creativity there, but how are you kind of pumping it out a little bit faster? Well, we did. We took a layer out, and what we really did, um, it, you know, many years ago, probably in a decade or more, we had rolled out the vehicle line executive organization. I would say um, a lot of people never understood it, and I, I would say we kind of had walked away from it as we went through different organizational changes. And when you really look at it, who's responsible for a vehicle? It's a it's a great chief engineer, and so we went back to really empowering the individual who knows every aspect of that vehicle and knows every trade-off they've made to get a great vehicle on the road, like you take a Dave Mash on the ATS, you know, under the supervision of Dave Leone. And that's the passion. And you want to have them responsible, not only for the great engineering, but also making those business trade-offs. And so we named 12 executive chief engineers, and they're responsible for then a set of vehicles. And, and they each have, so every vehicle has its own chief engineer. And it's single point accountability. They're responsible for making those trade-offs. And I really think I, I have seen a, a real transformation in just the, the short few months since we made that change of the ownership and the commitment. Because before we had um, some confusion of who was really accountable and who was really making the call. There's no confusion now. And, but they're empowered by it. So that's speeding the decisions, do you think? That Absolutely. More risk-taking, perhaps, or uh, being a little more creative? Or? I think they're, um, with the accountability, and, and they own their vehicle, and they know they're responsible, but I think it is saying, I know what this vehicle has to be. I know my customer. I know my target. Here's where I'm going to go. And, and I, I think, they, you know, again, you have these, you know, a, a really skilled, experienced engineer who's mm -hmm. making those trade-offs. So... I don't think they necessarily see it as risk, but I think the old system maybe would have perceived it as risk. Mm -hmm. But I think they're confident in their ability to execute. Has the kind of person in that position changed? Because you used to call them vehicle line executives. Yeah. And that's how they came across to me as executives. Right. Now you're calling them executive chief engineers. And right. that's how they come across as engineers. Has right. that changed? Well, they're, they all, I mean, it's critical. If you're going to be responsible for a vehicle, you have to have deep, uh, you know, an engineering background and deep vehicle engineering experience. But we also, again, look for those people in those key roles. Had to have a good business sense. Had to be able to make the business trade-offs. Because I can go to anyone and say, hey, give me a great vehicle. But if it's too costly because they haven't made the trade-offs right, it's not going to sell in the marketplace. And so I would say the individuals that we put in those positions, they are chief engineers, but they're business people as well. Would you so like to exciting. take that, though, to other areas? Do you see that there's still some more, I guess, streamlining that you can do, or do you feel comfortable? Well, I think we're always looking for ways to improve the productivity of the organization. We've done a quite a bit of work in that, in that area in the last couple of years. For instance, in North America, in, in Warren alone, we reassigned, uh, as we went through our organization, we realized we had too many engineers supporting the process of engineering as opposed to actually engineering a part. And we moved um, over, I think it was somewhere between three and 500. I, I, I know it was at least over 300 in the Warren area, and it might have, 500 may have been global, or it could have been, if I remember, the number uh, escapes me at the minute, but it was that number of people that we took and moved into actually being responsible for engineering the vehicle as opposed to supporting the process. Now, not to say that you don't need some folks supporting the process, but we realized uh, as we benchmarked that we had an opportunity. So we're looking for those types of opportunities, which has allowed us to do more products and, and more programs more quickly. So, um, you know, across the different areas, we already have, we call them GFLs, Global Functional Leaders, so we 
have strong individuals that own kind of, I'll say, the interior, the exterior, the chassis systems, et cetera. Um, and, and we want them to manage their business that same way, working in partnership with the chief engineers. Um, so, I, you know, again, I, I don't want to say no because we're always looking for ways to improve, but I don't have a targeted area I'm focused on right now. Mary, the three of us were recently in Paris at the auto show and uh, saw the new Opel Atom, which I thought was a really interesting little car. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what's, how much time are you spending on Opel and new products that are coming out of there because it's a very troubled subsidiary? Well, I'm a member of the Opel Supervisory Board, so you know, I, I would say in the last couple months I've been over there about once a month. Um, I'll be over there at least one more time before the end of the year. But again, traveling there isn't, isn't key because we're you know, probably in daily and weekly conversations. I review every Opel product as, as much as I review any product that's released in North America or Korea or Brazil. And so you know, they get our attention. In fact, I was on the phone this morning um, uh, at 6.15 uh, just reviewing the status of the Atomobile because it is, I think it's a great vehicle. I think it's, uh, it really shows the capability of the team and I think it's an exciting product so we want to make sure it launches flawlessly. So um, I'm very excited about it and, uh, and again, same attention that we have any product around the globe of making sure that it's, it, A, the team's got all the support they need to execute a great vehicle and that we feel it's on track. Can but you, for, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Can you give us any update on where you stand with working with Peugeot on uh, products? You know, I, I don't have anything further other than what we've already said about that. You know, we continue to have discussions and talk, but I don't have anything further to add than what we've already said uh, related to PSA. Okay, back to Opel for a second yeah. then. Uh, for outsiders looking in, it mm -hmm. looks like it's a disaster, not just because of the problems that Opel's mm -hmm. been having. The whole European market looks like mm -hmm. it's a disaster. Mm -hmm. It looks like GM is going to lose a lot of money there for quite some time. How much stick to itness does the company have in supporting Opel? Well, I mean, Steve Gursky is our chief, one of our, you know, our, ch our ch uh, chairman, and he's over there, uh, you know, running uh, Opel, and he along with the members of the Opal Supervisory Board, we continue to look at all the opportunities that we have to make the business more efficient, you know, whether it's looking at our structural cost, um, making sure we have all the best practices from an engineering. That's what my focus is when I'm there. So I would say we're committed to um, making sure that that company returns to profitability. Now, as you said, from a European perspective, um, you know, there's struggles from a, whole, from a whole market perspective, but I think we're taking all the steps that we need to take uh, to, to make sure that as the market recovers, which it will, uh, that we're well positioned. It still seems, though, that Opal's um, handicap, I guess, for GM is how do you best display it within the Chevy brands and the different brands that you have globally? And I'm wondering, you know, as you get more and more into it, how can you really set them up? I mean, are they a luxury car in Germany? If you, get, if you don't want a Chevy, then you go into this? Or... What's kind of your thinking of how you, you see Adam and, and Opal overall? Well, and I think that's one of the, the challenges that we're working on because I think Opal used to be a very, very strong brand. I think, frankly, mm -hmm. we, if you, you know, one of the best kept secrets about Opal right now is it has a very nice showroom of great products. I mean, from the recently launched Safira, you know, just a few short years ago, uh, the uh, Opal Insignia run that's European true. car of the year. I mean, it's the sister to the Regal, the Buick Regal. And so, uh, you know, I think one of the best kept secrets is the wonderful portfolio of cars that Opel has right now. And I would say they're a step above uh, and, and they're able, able to compete. And that's one of the things we've got to make sure the customers know. Um, and again, with some of the headlines, I think that's been detracted. So that's one of the things we've got to do is make sure we get our product message out and that Opel is a great brand and has great products that offer a lot of premium uh, amenities. 
not only do you run all product development for General Motors and are on the supervisory board of Opel, you're also on the board of General Dynamics and Carbonos, the Cancer Institute. Yes. What's that done for you? Have you been on outside boards before? And what do you think that's done for you doing just that? Well, I think it's a wonderful opportunity because I think, especially for someone like myself, although I've worked in many different functions in General Motors, I've always worked in the auto industry. So just having the opportunity to serve on the General Dynamics Board, a great company, and understand another industry and understand the parallels and the way that it's looked at there, and I can bring that inside of how we look at it from an automotive perspective, I think has been a, a productive relationship. And then um, for me, Carmonis is just, it's so important to the city, you know, the, the care and the treatment they provide. I think you know they cured my mother twice from breast cancer, so uh, it's a very important chair to me. And you know, getting to serve on the board and just meet the committed doctors, uh, and they, they they just work around the clock and 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 really focus on the patient. I'm really proud to be associated uh, with Carmanis, and then uh, you know with GD, the uh, just the opportunity to live and to uh, to learn and to to uh, share some of our uh, my learnings from the auto industry has been beneficial. So. How do you get the time to do it all? Yeah, that's yeah. what I was thinking. <laughs> I was, like, yeah. Yeah, so like, how, do you, how do you do all that? Well, I mean, it, it, you know, it, uh, it, it, it's time management and it's setting priorities. And I, I also have, I'm married, I've been married for 27 years with two children. So I always say that, you know, I have no time for hobbies because, you know, work and my kids and my family are, are the most important thing. And I try to balance and prioritize. And hopefully about 90% of the time <laughs> I get it right. <laughs> One of the things I always like to know too from the executives is how much time are you spending with CEO Dan Ackerson and what's really been his marching orders, I guess, in these past few months here? Do you what is he asking you to do kind of on a daily basis here? And we're down to the last minute. We need a quick answer. Okay. Well, I will just say I have regular, you know, many times a week interaction with, with Dan. And what he's driving is a very strong leadership team that we're, we're together multiple points in a day, whether it's on the phone or together, talking about issues, solving them, and, and collaborating to make sure we can. So it's a very collaborative, but make no mistakes, we need to drive results. So that's his message. Real good. Well, Mary Barra, thanks so much for coming on AutoLine this week. Very interesting talking about all the product development and the, and the other things that you're involved with as well. Well, thank you. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. And i got to thank uh, Michelle Krebs thank from Edmunds.com, Jeff Bennett from the Wall Street Journal. Thank you. Great having the both of you on here. Always fun. And I want to thank you for having tuned in to AutoLine this week. Please join us again next week for another episode. Underwriting for AutoLine this week is provided by... Did you know advanced high-strength steels are the leading material used by automakers to achieve the new fuel economy standards? Advanced high-strength steels are lighter in weight and reduce greenhouse gas emissions without compromising safety, performance, or affordability. Steel, a sound, sustainable investment. Today, tomorrow, and beyond. For more information, visit autosteel.org. Why? Because plants need water to grow. Because baseball's played in the summer. Oxygen and hydrogen. Because I forgot to get a receipt. Why? Why not? Why? Why don't you go ask your dad? Do Sonata drivers know something you don't? The Sonata from Hyundai.